Since 2017, the Italian Wine Podcast has exploded and expects to hit 6 million listens by the end of July 2023. We're celebrating this success by recognizing those who have shared the journey with us and giving them the opportunity to contribute to the ongoing success of the shows. By buying a paper copy of the Italian Wine Unplugged 2.0 or making a donation to help the ongoing running costs, members of the international Italian wine community will be given the chance to nominate future guests and even enter a prize draw to have lunch with Stevie Kim and Professor Attilio Scienza. To find out more, visit us at italianwinepodcast.com. Chin chin! Welcome to the Italian Wine Podcast. I'm Cynthia Chaplin, and this is Voices. Every Wednesday, I will be sharing conversations with international wine industry professionals, discussing issues in diversity, equity, and inclusion through their personal experiences working in the field of wine. If you enjoy the show, please subscribe and rate our show wherever you get your pods. Hello and welcome to Voices. This is Cynthia Chaplin, and today I have the great pleasure of having Richard Kershaw, Master of Wine, joining me from South Africa. Richard was one of our five-star wine and wine without walls judges this year in April, as he has been many times in the past. And it's great to have you on the show, Richard. Thank you so much for giving us your time today. It's an absolute pleasure. Good to be on the show. Well, it's great to have a minute to talk to you. Usually when I see you, either you're frantically busy or I am, or we both are. So it's nice to have a minute to just catch up and chat. Um, I'm assuming that you're back home in South Africa now after a very busy five-star and and, uh, Vinitaly week, which actually saw you running down the street to catch a bus. So Bravo for being the judge who was taking his uh, responsibilities seriously. Thank you. Yes. No, I know. I was caught by, I think one of the buses was going across my path and I quickly zipped out, much to the amusement of the occupants who were, of course, all my fellow judges. So, uh, yeah. Well, there's, there are always a few anecdotes of the Vinitaly week marathon, and that was one of my favorite ones this year. So anyway, you, you, as I said, you've, you've been a judge for us many times, um, and this year, of course. What keeps bringing you back? What is it that you love about Five Star that you uh, come and judge Italian wines for us every year? Well, I think um, there's a number of uh, reasons, actually. It's not just one particular one. I mean, Basically, I'm a judge anyway, so uh, I love to judge wine, and I, I just actually got back from London doing some judging there as well, although in much uh, much much rainier circumstances, and I'm actually going to be judging tomorrow and the next day for a local competition. But obviously, with my various hats, whilst judging is one of them, I also do obviously make my own wines, and for me, one of the, the points of uh, not just making it, but continuing being a master of wine is to be able to you know, transform yourself with different hats from that of a winemaker to that of a judge. And also I do a bit of education as well. And being a judge means I have an opportunity to look at wines from different perspectives. Clearly when I'm in Italy, I'm judging predominantly Italian wines. And those wines obviously aren't necessarily wines that I'm, I, I'm familiar with them obviously as a master wine, but I'm obviously keen and interested to see you know, what they're looking like right now in, in, in 2023 and how they uh, transpire. And of course, keep my perspectives open. I may be tasting Prosecco, but I'm not making it. But that doesn't stop me being able to see how Prosecco as a category is going to make informed decisions going forwards. Um, because actually part of being a master of wine is continuously learning. So I 
I really feel one of the things I really enjoy coming back to is is to taste a nice breadth of wines, interesting wines. I think we had a what is it a, Mer- a Merlot Petit Pedot from Etna, and I remember thinking it was actually quite good. And uh, I remember thinking, you know, that's something I wouldn't have had in the day to day ruminations because that's what Etna isn't necessarily famous for. But the point being is that it makes it interesting because people are trying new things and different things, and who knows, maybe that's something that will become interesting in twenty years' time. So actually, that's one of the things that keeps me coming back, keeping me aware, refreshed of all what's going on and how, you know, how, how the category Italy is, is proceeding. That's a really good point. It is uh, five star wine and wine without walls are both focused primarily on Italian wines, not 100 percent, but primarily. Um, this year, we tasted 2,269 wines over two days. Uh, so everybody was on their toes. But I think you're right. Um we are one of the only competitions that focuses completely on uh, Italian wines and does give you the opportunity as a judge from another country to taste some wines that maybe you wouldn't be able to get your hands on. Uh, I know we've had similar comments from other people who were involved in the judging panels um, that they aren't able to get some of these newer, more innovative wines from very specific areas in Italy um, because they're just not available. They're not being exported, being made in too small of a quantity. So I'm glad you got to try a few things that um, made you stop and think and and hopefully impressed you. But I do want to ask you a bit about your wines and what you're doing. I know you're in Elgin in South Africa, a place I would love to visit, um, and working with some of the better known international varieties, Chardonnay and Syrah and Pinot Noir now. And you've got a thing going called the Clone Head Club. I know you have, you know, colonial selections. Let's talk about that for a minute, because I think this is probably very important for climate change and, and environmental uh, best practice. Yes. Um, well, basically, as you say, we, we're in Elgin in South Africa. And, and I think for the for the listeners that aren't familiar with um, Elgin as, a, as an area so, and South Africa generally, um, it's obviously, a, a, you know, South Africa is a, a seen as a sort of relatively warm region where most things can ripen. And Selenbosch, northern Selenbosch especially, and, and further north is very, very true of that. But Elgin is quite unique in that sense because it doesn't have the climate like that at all. It's a much cooler climate. In fact, it's cooler than Burgundy, so quite considerably cooler and very suited to varieties like Chardonnay and Pinot Noir, even more so than Syrah, um, as can be attested to this year where Syrah struggled to ripen um, grape sugar wise uh, ripens phenolically, but it doesn't get to the sugars, so we end up with much lower alcohols. Um, but yes, for Syrah, uh, sorry, for Pinot and Chardonnay, it is, you know, it's an amazingly cool climate. We are right next to the sea, about five to sort of fifteen kilometers roughly, because the region isn't massive, and um, surrounded by mountains. And those mountains actually are give us a plateau. We're about three to five hundred and fifty meters above sea level, so we're much, much higher up. Um, and that proximity to see the altitude, the climate, all kind of conduce sort of t- to, to, to a much cooler region with, you know, high rainfall. We're, we're quite a lot of rainfall, about 1,100 mils, which is considerable. Um, and we also get quite a lot of cool nights simply because of our altitude and, and seas uh, closeness. So, yeah, it's quite an unusual spot. And I think when you refer to climate change, it's an area which... Um, Less affected in a sense, climate change will affect South Africa on a on a sort of uh, a, there's a curve to it. So once you're close to the sea, you won't find the climate change is so acute because obviously the amelioration of the Atlantic is going to going to help um, um, keep those temperatures a little bit lower. But once you get inland, obviously that's going to rise quickly and 
inside we've got sort of the Karoo and deserts further north, which um, certainly are going to get warmer or already have done. Um, but near, near the sea, we've actually got the opportunity to to um, grow those sorts of grape varieties with little little problems, except for ironically enough, the 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 the, the challenge of rain, because actually that's the one thing we've done. We get a lot, a lot of winter rainfall, but we've actually had quite a bit of summer rainfall recently, uh, which of course does change the the dynamic when it comes to ripening. Obviously, because you you increase your rot incident and and disease pressure. Um, but as such, we've we've actually managed to get some much more linear styles of wine which are actually quite refreshing and fit the the narrative of of many of the drinkers now who are wanting something you know with about 12 12 and a half 13 alcohol not not these monster wines at 15 or above and wines which are a little bit more elegant and finessed so they kind of fit right in that narrative really really nicely Absolutely. It it sounds like they really do. And I, I have to thank you as an educator myself for giving such a, a beautiful and eloquent description of Elgin, the climate, the altitude, everything. Uh, I hope that my Italian Wine Academy uh, WSET students are listening to this because <laughs> that was just textbook perfect. Um, but tell me a bit about the clones that you're selecting and why. Yeah, so actually what it what it comes down to, when I started the business in 2012, I was really interested in the different nature of clones because I played with that when I was previously at Mulderbosch. And um, I noticed that certain clones from the New World tended to exude that sort of sort of more brighter to an extent, boulder fruit, depending on, on the climate um, input, um, and gave us a, a lovely sort of, you know, character that actually was very approachable, um, but tended to become a little sweetness on the back palate that tended to, to become sweeter with age, sometimes morphing to sort of honey. Um, so a lot of the wines didn't tend to age. And what I found with the clones that came from Burgundy, um, or what we call the Dijon clones, they tended to give a little more mineral um, a little bit more acidity, a little bit more backbone. And of course, that was enhanced by the cool climate of Elgin to the point that you actually got wines that were age-worthy. And I think that for me, the world of wine tends to revolve in terms of the very premium or ultra-premium is all about, uh, world-class wines is about a, a aging ability. The, the, the wines start off fantastic, they're approachable, then they become something else and, and hopefully something better rather than just getting old. So there was an opportunity in Elgin to 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 really source clones that were suited to that, you know, suited to my sort of metrics. And so, yeah, we're using a lot of Dijon clones, in fact, only Dijon clones. They're all called extremely boring names, which are probably thought of about <laughs> two o'clock in the morning. You know, I, I'd love to know, meet these people. Probably they are cone heads rather than clone heads, but they probably. are certainly... Probably. Yeah. <laughs> but they come up with sort of innovative clones like C195, C196, and then CY548 for no real reason. Um, yeah, these are not um, romantic poets, are they? They're not. They're, they're definitely, definitely not. Um, but they all have a part to play. And in, in, at this point, there is a uh, that part is that they make up the, the, the clonal selection. And that clonal selection, in fact, indeed, is made up of 11 parcels. So within those parcels, different different amounts of those clones exist. Um, so when when you look at that, my back label, I'm very particular about leaving it with the vineyards on it so that you can see where the parcels come from and then back it up on the website and also when I do my talks to say that from that different clones within those parcels mean you have 21 batches so it's quite a convoluted possibly uh, way of actually um, looking at wine but it was a very it was a very much to me looking under the microscope very very 
uh, detailed and have a really deep dive on all the different clones that we use and the different vineyard parcels that we take from. And of course, the soil types that those parcels um, are sited on. Italian Wine Podcast, part of the Mamo Jumbo Shrimp family. Well, it's, I think this, you know, this notion of making a more um, scientific and descriptive back label is becoming more and more popular, especially with younger consumers who are much more concerned about, you know, the provenance of what they're eating and drinking, um, being able to see that site specific uh, information and, and sort of getting a better understanding of why some choices are being made, how sustainable they are. Um, it, it's all creating a picture and, and sort of a, a wealth of information for new consumers and younger consumers who really are interested in having that information. We see this happening in Italy, um, in Sicily, particularly on Aetna right now. There's a drive to having uh, more scientific and and better descriptions on back labels, and and I think you're a great example of of following through on that and giving consumers real information. Yeah, no, that's very kind. Actually, sorry, Odd, I should have emphasised we have a QR code because actually the amount of information is so much that you would never be able to get it onto the back of the label. So, of course, thank God for QR codes. Yes, exactly. Um, but what is important is that yes, it's it's important to be able to get that information back and rather than have me sort of give a give a tasty note which is interesting and pretty it doesn't actually mean a lot unless the person you know keen on on finding out about wine knows a little bit more about it and the backdrop of it is is critical um because that gives you the, the you know a door into what the winemaker was thinking um, and what the wine is standing for, especially obviously if you are concerned about you know various aspects of the wine. For example, all our wines are, funnily enough, actually natural wines in the sense that they're not natural wines as I do at Wine Without Walls, but they are wines that, because we do have a little bit of sulfites, but they are naturally made um, and people are keen on that sort of um, the point and we don't find them or filter them um, particularly and we don't um, you know, use acidulate them or put enzymes or any of the things that you know you want to do to to manipulate them. So that that helps people to make choices. You know, especially if they are vegetarian or vegan or anything like that, because they're all very very friendly um, to that narrative. Sure, absolutely. That that concept of low intervention um, without having a dirty wine, as you said, some sulfites are, are necessary, but that low intervention concept is, is crucial right now. And I think also helping with, as you were saying, um, creating these, these wines that are a bit more vertical, um, and, you know, age better. Uh, it's interesting how these various changes in practices and in the clonal selection is, is producing wines that are completely different style, um, more elegant, a little bit more sophisticated, not the big punch in the face of alcohol that we had, you know, back years ago. So I, the story itself all fits into what I see, and I'm sure you do as well, you know, a very modern emerging winemaking across the world. Yes. Um, I mean, in particular, I think that what, what we are seeing, and, it, and it's obviously from, from my perspective here in South Africa, which is one of the reasons I travel extensively, it's been a longer slope to climb or mountain to climb because here we are used to slightly bigger fuller more powerful reds and for example my pinot noir has been far more successful overseas than locally because it's seen here often as a light wine which which exactly what pinot noir is although light in color and a little bit more powerful in in structure 
but it's actually a slow process as you know some of the those sorts of wines are now starting to be more mainstream as people are understanding the different style a little bit better um, obviously overseas people are very familiar with Pinot Noir and especially if they drink Burgundy or can afford to drink Burgundy um, and of course there's a number of Pinots coming from all around um, you know the rest of Europe too so I think that that definitely fits in with that sort of fresher sort of more upright style also not 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 with too much too, too much oak um, and a little bit more you know elegance so yeah that does definitely fit that and I think that's where Elgin really has a chance for the future in fact our styles are quite savory in the Pinot Noir so it's actually a little bit less fruit driven and more sort of a more sort of restrained element which which also I think could be very interesting as, as we go forwards. Um, now my my curiosity is peaked, so I'm going to have to get my hands on that. But um, before I get you, you know, going and and back to your day today, just for our listeners um, and for my own personal curiosity, because I'm a nosy person by nature, um, how did you get into wine, Richard? Of course, now you are a master of wine, but uh, what was your path into wine? What sparked your interest? Well, um, I I went to college. I didn't didn't unfortunately I wasn't the, the world's best. Uh, schoolboy so i ended up sort of going in and out and, and and eventually deciding to do a chef's course um because that sort of seemed to be something i really enjoyed my, my both my father and mother were both um who, who were divorced both were very good cooks and so i got very interested in that and, and ended up working for for a couple of uh, well a restaurant and a hotel and ended up with that doing my wine exams but um that was largely because I wanted to know about wine, obviously service of wine. Sometimes one had to do, you know, even if you're at the back. And then I became interested in the, uh, you know, the, the, the actual concept of wine. It seemed to be quite a, quite a large format. And I passed my wine exams, in fact, did my diploma back in the day um, in the early 90s. I was actually a, a very, very young, in fact, and very quickly thought, well, I'm, I need to do the Master of Wine um, because I didn't have a degree at the time. It sounded like something maybe I had a calling for. Um, but as soon as I, uh, I, just before I started, I started working for a wine retail store to, uh, you know, a retail store in London where I, where I was living and worked there for a few years, but then realized that if I really wanted to pass this master wine, I needed to be out in the field. So I actually spent time in California, France, uh, in Bordeaux, in Germany, and then lastly in Hungary and eventually moved to South Africa in 1998, 99 or rather the first harvest was 99. And um, at that point, I'd actually abandoned my hopes of doing the MW because I was now just fixated on on the whole concept of winemaking. I was using my hands again, a bit like a chef. So suddenly there was a little bit more, you know, which I seem to be better at, um, to be honest, to start with. And then, of course, you know, I had to sort of start to look at different courses to help me with my microbiology, biochemistry, all the various inputs. And because I was sort of doing it as a mature student, I was now actually much more engaged than I was as a schoolboy, which I was clearly not engaged at all. I, I failed most <laughs> subjects, but the fact was I was now fully engaged in a in a more sort of adult way. And that was now a chance to to prosper. And in fact, I then got, um, I, I then got chatting to a friend of mine who had passed and they just said, why don't you have another go? You've got clearly the skill set. And so I started it again in 06, passing in 2011. And in fact, that was my sort of second coming when I was uh, doing the doing the course at Mulderbush. It gave me sort of the thoughts of going into uh, my own business. In fact, actually, my primary, my primary objective comes back to why I started the business, which was I felt South Africa at the time was a very diverse, interesting place, full of little quirky regions, full of lots of potential but not always able to put them into a, into focus or regionalize them and um, 
you know, many, much, many, many, many liters of saffron wine are sold in bulk quite cheaply. And, you know, seeing, you know, looking at, looking at the worldwide uh, challenge, especially because there was a lot of wine available, um, you know, it was clear to me that wine regions that had actual regional um, metrics and, re you know, man they had something to, to offer, you know, like for, like Piedmont, for example, or, or clearly, you know, Burgundy, Bordeaux and all those areas, they seem to attract a higher price. And, Elgin seemed to me as a actually an apple region because it's actually got more apples than grapes. It's actually just just a sort of as an aside. Yeah, we've got eight thousand hectares of apples and pears and about seven hundred fifty hectares of grapes. So we're really an apple region which has a bit of grapes planted. So that's the bottom line. And in fact, it's it's an important feature. I'll come back. I'll just uh, circle back to that. But going forwards, that was my region for coming to Elgin because there was a chance to really establish a sense of place and signature grapes such as Chardonnay Pinot. There was, that, that was a real feature. And importantly, coming back to that point about the apples, the land was actually cultivated as an apple region because that was what was profitable. So for those who were willing to change to grapes, it wasn't a question of having no opportunity costs. There was clearly the opportunity to plant grapes, but at the expense of apples, which meant that the, they had to add up. You couldn't just plant any old grapes and they had to make a profit. So that's why they decided to, you know, wh where I got involved, I said to the growers that we should be focusing on, on Chardonnay and then latterly more recently Pinot, but to put grapes that do have, you know, a price, a broken price ceiling, there's an opportunity to, to, to make quite expensive Chardonnay in a world that accepts expensive Chardonnay. Yeah, if you drive the quality up, the people know what Chardonnay is. They know what Pinot Noir is. And if you've got the quality economically, you can make an impact much faster than, you know, as you said, with something like, you know, a Fiano that not everybody knows what that is. Precisely, yeah. And and that and there is definitely a price ceiling for something like a Fiano or, or something like that where you're never going to go above, you know, however much, you know, you want to sell a 200 euro Fiano is going to be challenging. Um, so in fact, Chardonnay uh, was a good fit as a white wine grape variety, given the amount. And in fact, what's happening is there's definitely now a shift to more plantings, um, the, the apple industry has been incredibly profitable. It's staggering just how much these guys uh, can make profitable-wise. But they are now starting to feel a little bit of, of, a, of the pinch, um, I think largely driven by the circumstances over the last two or three years. And I think that there's an opportunity to put more vines in the ground, which I think will be exciting because the region is small. I mean, 750 hectares is not a mass, massive region. And a lot of the grapes... Um, for good or bad, is, is is sent outside of the region. About 77% is made in other locales, not in Elgin. So whilst the producers uh, number about 17, it, it would be nice to see more wine being made here, or importantly, whatever wine, if it isn't made here, labelled as Elgin, because that will give it a stamp of quality, um, and that will give it a sense that it has a value attached more so than another region. So I think that's really, really important. And for me, that's one of my driving factors being here. That's so interesting, both from a, a marketing standpoint and an educational standpoint. Um, I, I love the idea of establishing a sense of place um, that seems to be a, a hot sort of buzzword at the moment, um, kind of taking over from our, our old notions of terroir, but establishing a sense of place for Elgin wines in particular um, not only just for marketing and, and uh, you know, we all have to make some money, but also educating people, um, not just students, but, you know, wine lovers around the world about the different wines. South Africa is not just one place. You know, Elgin is a very particular location, as you've pointed out. So um, 
I, I want to wish you all the best with this because it sounds like you're on the verge of more exciting you know, projects and prospects in Elgin, uh, and you haven't been there all that long, you know, just over 10 years. So still quite a lot to accomplish. I, I'm so glad you could come on today. Thank you so much. It's been an absolute pleasure. Thank you. All right. Take care, Richard, and be safe in your travels and your uh, judging adventures. And I'm sure we will see you back in Verona soon. Absolutely. We'll see you next year. Okay. Cheers. Thank you for listening. And remember to tune in next Wednesday when I'll be chatting with another fascinating guest. Italian Wine Podcast is among the leading wine podcasts in the world and the only one with a daily show. Tune in every day and discover all our different shows. You can find us at italianwinepodcast.com, SoundCloud, Spotify, Himalaya, or wherever you get your pods.